for me, kind of a continuation. We, uh, me and uh, Catherine Meyer from our sociology department uh, for the National Science Foundation this summer organized a conference on understanding global tension. And it was a very interesting conference. The only hardship was, right, we had to do it in Istanbul. It was tough. So it was tough, but uh, we, we managed. And we were hoping, and the NSF was hoping, that we would stimulate some working groups out of that conference who would then pursue one of the six or eight themes that we had focused the conference around. And lo and behold, there are some working groups, and this is one of them. And while they were in town today, we wanted to take advantage of at least two of their number to uh, come and give a talk. And there are two people who I think a lot of you know, but in case you don't, I'm going to introduce uh, Phil Schrote and Misty Gurner, our political scientists at the University of Kansas. They are the creators of well, what we used to call the Kansas Events Data System when it was called KEDS. Now I think it's called Tavari, uh, and I don't know what that acronym stands for any longer, <laughs> but we can see in a minute. More importantly, uh, they have done tremendous work over a long time on using events data research to study contemporary world affairs. Uh, they, Misty especially has also written a lot on the Middle East. She has a, a book that all of us have used at one time or another, I suspect, if you teach Middle East politics on the Arab-Israeli conflict that now is it its second or third edition? Um, second. Second edition. And third, second edition on understanding contemporary Middle East. And the other one is second edition of contemporary Middle East. And that's with Jillian, right? Yeah. Jillian Schwedler, who's also part of this working group but is not here. Uh, Phil and Misty have written using their events data structure to study conflict in the Middle East. I've seen that often. So today they're going to do current events data analysis, current trends and events data analysis. I think the most important thing for me about uh, Misty and Phil is that my traveling partners <laughs> that my son and I have now gone to China with and Turkey with and uh, we've had a lot of fun over the years. Uh, I'm going to ask before they take the floor to have you go around and introduce yourselves because I can look around the room and I don't know everybody and if that's the case I know everybody doesn't know each other. So I'm going to start with Bridget Coggins. If you just say who you are and how you're affiliated with this, that would be great. And then we'll, when they're done, Phil and Misty, you guys take over. Great. Bridget? I'm Bridget Coggins, and I'm a pre-doc at Rochanta this year, and I'm a PhD candidate in political science. Hi. And then my name is I'm 
Okay, um, what we're going to do today is a general overview of event data with particular attention to uh, what you gain and lose by using automated coding of event data. And it's um, a general survey in, in a lot of ways of the work we've been doing for the last 15 or so years. We're going to try to relate some of this to the specific issue of this workshop group, which is uh, contentious politics or repression and dissent. So look specifically at the issue of when you move this from traditional event data, which tended to be interactions between nations or nation states, uh, to sub-state actors and uh, protest groups and so forth, what, again, are some of the, uh, the uh, trade-offs, the problems, the challenges there. Um, I'm going to start with just a very brief uh, definition or just make sure everybody's on the same page of what we mean by event data coding, talk about some of the differences between the original event data coding that were sponsored by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the 1960s and early 70s, and the contemporary work that's being done by our project and several other projects, then talk about automated coding. Um, MISTI in particular is going to be looking at some of the experience that we've had in, we've done a lot of work on the Israel-Palestine problem and some of the places this is working well, some of the places it's not, it, it has not worked so well. This is, again, as I, I mentioned earlier, it's a, uh, uh, you get in somewhat different sets of problems. Then talk about some current issues, the first being to get a general idea of how accurate is this stuff for predicting conflict. That's a, slight, that's, a, that's a different issue than understanding conflict, obviously, but it's one of the things that these projects have been used for. Look at the issue of scaling and of uh, the extent to which you have to have complex codes versus simple codes. The answer is you can do a lot with simple codes. And the problem of multiple media sources. Um, then I think we'll probably skip over most of the last part. We've got a long list of where, where we see the, uh, the field going and sort of useful, essential, and, and uh, ideal features. All of our material, I'd start out by saying, is all of our software is open source. You can download it from our website. All of our data sources are posted as soon as we have them available. There's no data embargoes. There's no, we've got our own good secret stuff that we'll publish with, and you guys get the junk that's left over. Everything we do is, is uh, open and uh, freely available on the web. Uh, we've got a website that is on one of these slides somewhere, but you can, uh, it's, it's www.ku.edu slash tilde keds, K-E-D-S, uh, which so far we haven't been sued over. So. And basically uh, what's going to happen is Phil's going to, pretty much lead things off, and I'm going to kind of jump in periodically. Right, yeah. Um, Can you see over my head? Okay. Okay. Um, just to give this brief introduction to what event data look like, you start out with a stream of news sources. This is just an example of the sorts of uh, newswire leads that we got out of the 1990 Iraq Kuwait crisis. And the point is, it's not that we have three of them, it's that we have 30,000 of them coming through. And what we're trying to do is convert this textual data, in our case English language, uh, into some sort of data that will tell us who's doing what to whom. In other words, pick out the subject, verb, and object of the sentence and put them into codes. Uh, until recently, we've been using an uh, event coding scheme called the World Events Interaction Survey that was developed in the 1960s by Charles McClellan. 
And essentially what it does is it's got 22 major categories. It's got about 60 minor, minor categories with, with uh, or a total of 60. Going from cooperative things like yield, giving up something, consultations, uh, uh, giving away things, grants, rewards, up to conflictual events like uses of force, uh, expulsions, demonstrations, and so forth. And this is fairly typical of the sort of thing you see in event data, about 20 or so category, major categories of behavior. Um, when we code the, um, the uh, Iraq-Kuwait crisis, what you get are data that have a date, year, month, day, the actor, so our uh, IRQ is Iraq, the target, who something is being done to. So here Iraq is assuring Egypt probably that it's not going to invade Kuwait. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the Weiss code is, these are the three-digit codes, so uh, 05 is assured or something like that. Uh, so you, again, the key is that you get, you know, tens of thousands of these events over time. What we've typically done is scaled these. This is a scale that Joshua Goldstein, who was at American, is best known now as the author of the Joshua Goldstein, who wrote the undergraduate IR textbook, uh, is, uh, came up with uh, to basically assign numerical values. And the next two or three graphs that I'm going to show you are what we call Goldstein scaled versions of the event data. In other words, we simply assign a number to each one of the events. The military engagement is minus 10. A, uh, a conceived power is plus five, and so forth. Uh, and what you're going to see is a time series of those. Can you go backwards just one? Sure. Yeah. And one of the things that's really important about this and part of why you'd want to use event data is that it turns out that it's just impossible for human beings to keep track of everything that's going on. We all think that we're keeping track. We all think that we're following the news really intensely, but in fact we're not. And so by being able to code and then collapse things into Goldstein scales or into other ways of, of combining the data, um, it allows us to see patterns that as human beings we might miss just because human brains can't keep track of as much as is what as is going on. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and again, the, and the, the downside of that is you, you lose the detail. It's right. a forest and trees type situation. So here's a part of our, our series. We have our data all the way up to... Uh, to uh, 2004. Yeah, 2000, October 2004, but... Uh, I'm sorry, September. But uh, this is just a piece of it. But this is... Uh, our main series on Israel-Palestine. This is Israel's invasion of Lebanon. This is the outbreak of the first intifada that then kind of decays gradually. The one positive spike indicating a uh, uh, you know, positive interactions is, of course, Oslo. And then after this, you get this messy, messy series of the post-Oslo period, which combines cooperation and conflict. And this is a fairly typical uh, sort of event sequence. Uh, this is one where we were trying to code some sub-state actors and uh, uh, intergovernmental organizations. We were looking at uh, Liberia, which is fairly difficult to code because the media do not pay a lot of attention to Africa. Uh, but we can, for example, look at interactions that the uh, magenta line is between ECOWAS, the Economic Cooperation Organization of West African States, and the rebel groups, the various rebel groups in Liberia, as well as looking at Liberian government actions to uh, Liberian rebels. This is an example of the sort of thing where you could look at the sub-state actors and not just the interstate. 
Israel-Palestine is interesting because it's sort of an interstate conflict and sort of a, a sub-state. Uh, in fact, that's one of the things in contention. One thing that's sometimes confusing to people, um, go back even yeah. to the other one, is that when we're doing Goldstein scales, because you're measuring conflict and cooperation, things below the line, that's worse. Yeah, that's that's getting conflict. worse and worse. Yeah. That's the conflict yeah. part. Um, and sometimes that's um, counterintuitive when you're looking at these grants. You're thinking, with graphs, you're thinking conflict should be going up, yeah. and it's the opposite. Yeah, and in fact, occasionally there's analyses where people reverse the scores, and that gets thoroughly confusing. Um, I'm going to actually uh, skip through the, right. these. Yeah. So, again, the advantages to summarize is a large amount of information. Uh, it can be analyzed using statistical methods. That's generally, generally the purpose of this is to use it as independent or dependent, or often both, uh, variables in a statistical analysis rather than simply doing graphs. Uh, and the other real advantage is that with automated coding methods, it's very inexpensive to produce. You can update a data set once you've got all the programs set up in you know, a matter of, of uh, an hour or so to generate data for several months. We've been doing some ongoing work for the Swiss Peace Foundation on monitoring Israel-Palestine. Every three months we update some more data and then we write some qualitative analysis of it and so forth. But it's a very straightforward thing to do. The downside, it's a summary. You don't have context. It's just who did what to whom. Uh, it's very noisy. As you saw, you get a lot of, of noise. You know, this is not a smooth time series by any means, so you need to either smooth it statistically or, or uh, use the, you know, let it get absorbed in the error term. Uh, and then the other problem we found is the statistical methods for analyzing this are not all that well developed. Uh, you've got a, because what you've got is a nominal time series. Most statistical methods are developed for a interval level time series, like you know interest rates or uh, uh, you know stock prices or whatever. Uh, and this is a nominal time series. And there's not a whole lot of stuff out there, but we've, we've done some development along those lines. Then data were originally developed in the 1960s, and the data sets, most of the data sets that are available, like in the ICPSR, these older data sets from the 60s. Uh, they had a nation-state orientation. They tended to try to cover the entire world. Uh, in other words, every country or virtually every country. They were all done with human coding. The methods for doing automated coding were not developed at that point. Generally, the source texts were Western newspapers. In fact, primarily, it was the New York Times. There was one data set that claimed to be monitoring like 30 sources, but in fact, the density of events that <coughs> supposedly got out of these 30 sources was less than the New York Times one, so it's little skepticism there. Uh, and finally, the statistical methods. Models were uh, very simple. They're frequently nothing more than cross tabs. Uh, though sometimes the simple models are you know, what you need. Uh, examples of this, uh, the World Events Interaction Survey, the uh, uh, COPDAB, which is Conflict Event, Creon, which was done here at Ohio State, uh, the World Handbook, which is still being updated. Uh, BCAL, Behavioral Correlates of War, is a very nice data set, though it it's, uh, just covers crises. So there are about you know, a half a dozen or more of these data sets that were developed during the 1960s in this early phase. Um, these things sort of faded out in the late 1970s, partly because they were simply too expensive to maintain. And once the uh, Defense Department backed out of it, people couldn't afford to maintain these. So you went through a lull when there was not that much event data collected. Um, this revived in the early 1990s with the introduction of automated coding and a couple of NSF-funded projects. But these newer data sets tend to be different in several different ways. Uh, 
First, a lot more focus on sub-state actors and on uh, non-state actors such as ECOWAS and so forth. Most of the existing data sets, there's, there's one sort of exception, are focused on single conflicts. In other words, rather than trying to do the entire world, uh, you focus in on a conflict or a conflict region. Uh, we've done data sets for the Levant, Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Syria, Egypt. Yeah, we did one for the Gulf. We've done one for the Balkans, uh, the former Yugoslavia, and West Africa. We've got a set that basically goes from Mauritania down to Cameroon. Uh, And that by focusing in more, you get a lot more detail, particularly on sub-state actors. Um, We use automated coding. Basically, everybody uses automated coding now. Um, We primarily use text from wire services, which still have their biases. Wire services tend to cover things that are important to people that have lots of money. But um, the uh, but it's it does you don't run into the editorial problems that the New York Times allocates typically about three pages for international news. There's not much you can put on three pages. Reuters or AFP, in contrast, have about a thousand stories per day. And then finally, much more complicated statistical models. The three main data sets that are available now. There's a data set that this is no longer being uh, maintained called Panda. Uh, uh, something political and uh, nonviolent direct action or something right. like that. Uh, oh, protocol for the analysis of nonviolent direct action. This was done at Harvard by Doug Bond. Uh, IDEA is the more recent uh, update of this. This is a comprehensive data set, and Craig knows more about this than I do, uh, or than we do. And then finally, the new one that we've got is uh, Cameo, which is Conflict and Mediation Event Observations. Uh, this is, was developed specifically to study uh, mediation, and it's uh, optimized for automated coding. Do you want to say anything else on that? Um, just a couple of things. Um, part of what we discovered when we started looking at, um, when we started out doing machine coding in WISE, as Phil suggested. And we did that for a couple of reasons, including the fact that we wanted, when we first started doing automated coding, which is now taken for granted, it was not taken for granted. It was viewed as very weird and far out and unreliable. And so we needed to work with impossible, couldn't be done. We were idiots to try. And so we really had to deal with an existing data set likewise so that we could make good comparisons with it. But as we began to do more work on mediation and on substate actors and in the post-Cold War period, we realized that Weiss was totally bound by, and understandably so, its Cold War framework. And so in creating Cameo, even though the focus is on mediation, conflict and mediation efforts, we've been trying to more generally expand it out to include the kinds of events that are happening in the post-Cold War period um, that weren't really included in WISE. Um, And that means everything from including a lot more cooperative events than WISE included, but also trying to be more subtle in our the way we talk about force. So if you think back on that one of the very early slides, WISE has a category for force. Whereas we have a whole series of different categories of different types of force that get used, especially in sub-state conflicts. So you can have force that is structural force. You can have force that's uh, being done by um, official military. You can have force that's being done by unofficial military. You can have force that's being done by 
um, individual actors who are acting um, on their own initiative or on behalf of another initiative. So Cameo is trying to include all of those different kinds of force um, not just force as one big category. So we're trying to really address the greater complexity and greater subtlety um, of conflict in the post-Cold War period that goes along with the fact that we're moving away from a, a state-based model to a model that includes states, sub-states, uh, national groups, um, NGOs, and so forth. Another thing that we've been doing in Cameo, and this is a little less well-developed, that we're, we're reaching closure on it, is coming up with some standard ways right. of coding sub-state actors. And this becomes remarkably complicated. We certainly discovered this in the uh, trying to code the former Yugoslavia, where you've got, now what if you do with Iranian-backed uh, uh, Bosnian Muslim... Uh, uh, Operating in Macedonia. Yeah, or, yeah right, yeah. Uh, or even Israel-Palestine, where yeah. you've got... Um, Palestinians who are living within Israel, Palestinians who are living in the West Bank and Gaza, Palestinians who are living in Lebanon and elsewhere, uh, Palestinians who are associated with the PLO but are not associated with the Palestinian Authority, Palestinians who are part of Hamas versus Palestinians who are part of Fatah. And so we've been trying to systematize um, those kinds of sub-state actors so that we can sometimes deal with Palestinians as a whole and other times deal with these different subgroups within the Palestinian community. Yeah, yeah we've got a, if anybody's interested in this, we've got a code. Actually, nice big bring code it with us. We, yeah, yeah, we've got a really thick code book for Canada. Um, um, yeah. Okay. Skip over there. Um, in terms of, of, this, of categorization of political uh, interactions, uh, we've there's some really interesting convergence here. It turns out that multiple projects have come up with. It turns out if you're coding in English, you typically need about 5,000 to 8,000 uh, verb phrases to uh, characterize pretty much every uh, type of, of political interaction that you can think of. Now, again, that's not going to be 100% perfect, but it's that's the the general notion. What's important about that number is 8,000 is relatively finite. It's not 8 million. It's not even 80,000. And you can actually develop these... Uh, codes. It took us, you know, two or three years to do it, and we're still working on it. But it's it's relatively it's doable. In terms of micro level categories, in terms of events, almost all these things have between about 50 and 150. And in terms of macro level, the ones I showed you earlier, it's typically about 10 to 20. And a number of these projects have come up in the same number. So this is the level of detail that you're typically looking at. It's also worth pointing out that we can. We have not done a lot but it, with this, but it is possible to do the same kind of coding work in other languages. Mm -hmm. Very early on, we experimented with doing it in German, which turned out to be much easier than English. Um, and we have not pursued that since then because we haven't needed it for our own work. But there's absolutely nothing about this approach that couldn't be used for other languages. Um, we just haven't pursued that. Yeah, for machine coding, in fact, English is one of the most difficult or is a difficult language, both because its vocabulary is huge, it's massively larger than most languages, and it also doesn't use case markings. Uh, so you can't tell from the form of a word whether something's a subject or an object, for example. Most, not most, but a lot of languages do that. So somebody but, wanted to do Spanish yeah, or French. Yeah, if you'd like to do Spanish, French, Arabic, Arabic please. Please, Arabic. somebody do Arabic. Yeah. Uh, we would be really happy if someone would do Chinese, Arabic. Chinese, Japanese. 
Okay, uh, advantages of machine coding. Some of these are obvious and some of them aren't. Uh, we'll start by saying the reason we got into this in the first place is that we, it was the only way we could afford to get data. We wanted to study the contemporary Israel-Palestine conflict so we didn't have uh, you know, $200,000 sitting around with, with no better use for it. We didn't have a period. And um, so we needed the data. And uh, so the reason we did it, it was, as fa it was uh, you know, we could do it uh, relatively inexpensively. Um, but we found there's a bunch of other advantages, and if anything, I would argue these in some ways outweigh the, uh, the issue of expense. Uh, first, it's transparent. You know explicitly what your coding rules are. They're you know, a combination of the program and the coding dictionaries. You know exactly what they are. Which, yeah. which is very, very different than the older coding yeah. schemes. You know, one of the reasons that um, that DARPA period um, faded was lack of money, but another was that as the people who had originally started the program, you know, started these coding projects, um, stopped doing them, it was very, very difficult to reconstruct how it was that any given item was coded because it was all taught one-on-one. -on -one. It was my teaching Catherine Meyer how to code a particular thing. And once I wasn't around or she wasn't around, there was no way to replicate. Yeah. Whereas um, with machine coding, because the coding rules are transparent and explicit in the dictionaries, you can always see how it was done. You can disagree with it and change it if you want, but you can always know how it is that we came up with the data that we have. Whereas you can't do that at all when you go backwards mm -hmm. and look at these, these older data sets. You're clueless. Yeah. how they came up with the data. It may be good, it may be bad, but there's no way of knowing how they coded. Yeah. yeah, we've got some early Weiss documentation. The only reason we have it is Harold Getzgau of Northwestern was cleaning out his file cabinets after he retired and said, you guys might want to look at this stuff. It was stuff he'd gotten directly from Charles McClellan in 1967. But, you know, that obviously that's accidental. Nobody, most of that record is gone. Uh, I would add, you know, it's not just our data, our dictionaries. We actually put in with the data sets and, you know, zip files and whatnot. So you always, we always send the data, the dictionary. When you download the data, you get the dictionaries. Um, it's reproducible, and it's particularly important when you're maintaining something over a long period of time. There is a sort of underground version of Weiss that goes from 66 to 93 that was coded as at least six or seven different institutions on both coasts by for-profit groups, not-for-profit, started out being coded by surfers at USC, ended up being coded by people with shaved heads at the Naval Academy. And, you know, are those coding rules the same? Pretty unlikely. Whereas we can go back and recode within the limits of intellectual property uh, rights. Uh, we can recode a data set with anything we uh, change, uh, you know, if we make changes. We can share coding dictionaries. And then finally, the coding is not affected by the idiosyncratic knowledge of individual coders. This is typically the criticism you see is, well, you know, the machine's stupid. It just, you know, uh, it, it just gets the literal meaning. Yeah, I know. That's right. That's but on the right. other hand, it doesn't read anything into the thing either. And what that means is, well, the next slide is going to be the disadvantages, is it's going to mess up occasionally, but you're not going to get systematic biases by somebody that you know thinks that Syria is in the, you know in South America or something, uh, and that sort those sorts of errors. If you've had any experience with human coding, large-scale human coding projects, 
these are very imperfect. It's, it's definitely watching uh, sausage being made. And they don't get tired. Yeah, they don't get, don't get tired. tired which and is really important. The single biggest constraint that we're finding in our project at the moment is they don't talk to each other. The machines don't. Uh, because we're constantly getting yelled at that our coders are too loud because they're 19-year-olds. Imagine that, 19-year-olds talking. Uh, so anyway. Um, Disadvantages, uh, we can't deal with complex sentences. Uh, we can't deal with uh, metaphorical, ideographic uh, uh, sources. I guess that's not on there, but that's another thing we can't deal with. Uh, it does require machine-readable text, which means it's harder to go to archival sources, such as uh, F, uh, Foreign Broadcast and Information Service. We tried, but it, yeah, we tried to scan, scanning. it didn't work. We tried the Times of London, because uh, we wanted to code the first Palestinian revolt in 1936. Didn't couldn't do that. So you're stuck pretty much with contemporary, or contemporary is sort of 1990 forward. Uh, and originally the development of the dictionaries took a lot of time, but that, that's been done and you can simply modify the dictionaries we have now. Yeah, Christian. Do you want to use ProQuest? Excuse me? ProQuest? Are they text I'm not acquainted with that source. Oh, it's like uh, all of the New York Times, all of the Washington Post back to the beginning. Oh, that isn't that, but that's a, a, a PDF or scanned PDF files, aren't they? I think. Yeah. I think it's. I think it's images. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, you can use OCR for character recognition. We haven't done it. It, it may actually be quite good now. This experiments we did were ten years ago, which is forever in computers. Uh, but it's it's going to be harder than logging on a Nexus and you know, 15 minutes later you've downloaded a year's worth of data, uh, and it is that fast. Uh, so trade-offs, uh, the systems that are available, and I'm going to go through these quickly. We originally developed our system in the early 90s, the original system called KEDS, and uh, this was about, uh, this ran only on the Mac and uh, used a method called sparse parsing, which is that we simply interpret as much of the sentence as we need to in order to uh, get the, the subject, verb, phrase, and the object, and that's all. Uh, it was relatively slow, 40 events per second. Of course, that's on a fairly slow machine. Um, the newest version is Tabari, which is textual analysis by augmented replacement instructions. You can guess yourself which came first, the title or figuring out what it meant. But uh, the, uh, it's also uh, a sparse parser, but it's more sophisticated. It's in C++. Uh, again, the source code is available. Open source, runs on Linux, Mac, and uh, Windows. And it codes on a relative, what would nowadays, of course, be an antiquated machine. The last time I did a test on it on a Pentium uh, was uh, 3,000 events per second. Uh, that's roughly 7 million times faster than human coders. The other system that is out there is the VRA coder, which is a proprietary coder that is done by uh, VRA, which I forget, Virtual Research Associates, uh, Doug Bond's uh, company. And it's a full uh, parser. It, parses the entire sentence, which means it's able to deal with subordinate phrases and so forth uh, more in a more sophisticated way. My understanding is it's pretty much hard-coded for the IDEA uh, system, though I'm not completely certain about the details. operates on Windows, and because it's a full parser, it's much slower. Still, two events per second compared to humans can reliably code about six events per hour over a long period of time when you take in training. That's still a lot faster uh, than human coding. And the reason the yeah. speed thing is so important is that if someone is interested, like if any of you are interested in using this sort of thing, but you don't like the categories that we're using, or you feel like they're not appropriate for your own project, 
you can change the dictionaries and then recode the whole thing very, very quickly. Um, and that's, again, something different from human coding, um, and that's why the speed is so important. We all got kind of stuck in the Cold War framework because it was human coded, and we got stuck with a particular coding framework because whatever coding framework things were coded in was what you had to stick with. Now, because you can recode so quickly, you can say, well, this cameo thing doesn't really fit with what I'm interested in doing. I'm really much more interested in focusing on these other topics. You can change the dictionaries, and then you can just recode the whole thing very, very quickly and get your data um, without having to invest two years that we invested in doing it. So that's why we keep stressing the speed of recoding. Yeah, yeah our feeling, and it, this certainly hasn't taken over yet, is that where, where we would like to see event data analysis in another 10 years or five years or whatever is that the norm would be a customized data set right. uh, or a customized coding scheme. Uh, because I think dependence on things like Weiss and Copy have held, held things back. And that if you're doing uh, you know, a study of, of uh, you know, former Congo Zaire or something, there's going to be some very specific activities that you're going to be interested in, like interaction with mining companies or something, that are not going to be in WISE. Well, code, you know, that where you need custom stuff, code custom stuff, and then things like meetings are meetings, and, and uh, foreign aid is foreign aid, and you leave that alone. But being able to do these customized things, I think, is going to give a lot of, it's going to bring the data in line with the theory, and that's what we want all along, uh, rather than, you know, Having the, yeah. having the data drive right. the theory. Yeah. You know, you're stuck with this data, these data, yeah. and you're trying to figure out what can you, what questions can you ask given the data that yeah, you have. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. By doing it this way, you can say, what are the questions I want to answer, and how can I then futz with the data a little bit and get the answers that I want? Um, just some comments on how this might apply to contentious politics, the, the subject of this, this workshop. Um, first, I think automated coding is far better at dealing with substate actors, and more generally, it can give you a consistent coding of substate actors. The existing data sets, primarily because they were international relations data sets, sort of inconsistently code substate actors. They have some big ones like the, IR, the Irish Republican Army and the Viet Cong and so forth, but not a lot. Uh, furthermore, as Misty just talked about, you can recode. If you suddenly realize halfway through is, oh my gosh, I should have been coding, you know, this group that I thought was a single group has two factions that barely talk to each other. I should have been coding them separately. Just make your little changes, figure out how to distinguish between the two, and recode. And again, recoding on a system like Kabari takes you know, a couple of minutes. Um, the, um, we have used these methods uh, for generating um, interval level data such as death totals and uh, demonstration sizes. They're approximate, but they're probably not all that much worse than the, uh, you know, the, the, there's probably at least as much error generated by the news sources as by the coding. Um, interesting thing, in a lot of parts of the world you can get local newspapers in real time. The problem is getting the archives. Uh, but on uh, data sets, systems like Factiva and Lexis, uh, uh, there are quite a few. It's not just the Western world, though far and away you can get a lot more stuff in the Western world. But if you were doing real-time monitoring, there's a bunch of papers. Most, you know, most the, the web is worldwide, and any major paper now has its own web pages in whatever language, and you could download this stuff every day with a script or whatever. Uh, and then finally, there's definitely a possibility of thematic coding. You know, we're picking up what are people talking about. Are they talking about human rights? Are they talking about the price of oil? Are they talking about, uh, you know, if there's an, you know, is 
a particular area or, or events in a particular area of the country are they being mentioned at all or implicitly is the government covering them up that sort of thematic stuff is, is very straightforward uh, challenges uh, the number of actors that must be identified is very substantial actually did you have any other no, uh, the number of actors that you have to identify is substantially larger in sub-state uh, conflicts there's only 200 odd nation states in the world you've got them there and you've got their leaders and uh, you've got them whereas in sub-states you may need a lot of additional information geographical information ethnic group information um, Leadership is typically less stable. Uh, you'll have people that will show up, they'll be in the news for two months, and then you'll never see them again, so you have to account for that. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is possible, just so you know, though, to, um, and this is true both with states and with non-state actors, there are ways within the coding programs to indicate that during this time period, this individual yes. should be associated with this particular group. So that's what you do when you have, say, a Boutros Boutroscali who has different roles at different periods of time, is you date restrict. And you say, when you see Boutros Boutroscali during these dates, you code him in this category as this type of actor. When you see him in these other time periods, you code him in this other category. Same with a Jimmy Carter. Lots and lots of people who hold different roles at different periods of time. There are ways of handling them that are pretty straightforward. Um, a general problem, and I'll get, give a couple examples of this later, is uh, the coverage of, by news sources. It can be uh, international news sources can be very erratic. Uh, national news sources, depending on the country, can also be erratic depending on how much pressure the news uh, media are to cover or not cover particular events. But the international sources typically focus on major events. If there's a huge demonstration, they'll cover it. But if there's a little demonstration in a regional area, they may not cover it. Um, there's a lot of variation depending on where the reporter comes in, the so-called parachutist problem that uh, you get a reporter, they come in, they cover the place for two weeks, and then you don't see it again for another six months. This is a real problem in places like Africa and Central Asia. Uh, and then you're going to get far better coverage in major cities uh, than you get in the region. Uh, though somebody pointed out this morning, the other place you get coverage, if it's a disputed thing, is borders. So you have this almost this kind of donut thing. You've got the capital city is covered, the borders are covered, and then what goes on in between, uh, you probably don't want to, you know, the reporters either don't want to or can't uh, go there. Liberia would be a good example on that. Um, the sentences being coded may assume substantial implicit knowledge. In other words, if you see a demonstration was held in X, well, it doesn't say whether it's pro or anti-government because the assumption is if it's in a pro-government area, well, of course it was pro-government. If it's in a rebel area, it's anti-government. Uh, this is particularly true when you go to full story coding as opposed to lead sentence coding, where you know two thirds down and way down in the story there may be some you know, pronouns and so forth. The, the earlier part of the story is identified with those those uh, referred to, and, and a human reading it knows that a machine has more difficulty. Uh, you've got the problem of lack of access uh, of large parts of the country. This is true even in Iraq right now. One of the complaints about coverage in Iraq is the reporters aren't going out anymore for some strange reason. And uh, you know, it was a major problem in Liberia and Sierra Leone. It was simply impossible to get to places. Uh, I'm guessing Rwanda was probably that way for a while. Yeah. Uh, and then finally you get the famous uh, you know, uh, unidentified actors, you know, unidentified gunmen. We, we were coding uh, Lebanon during the Civil War period. And it's, you know, 
gunman killed. It doesn't say who. Well, probably nobody knew. Uh, probably the victim didn't know in a lot of cases. So that just becomes part of your noise. Uh, just quickly, and I, I am watching the time, just want to go through a couple of areas uh, just coming out of our research and stuff that we've been doing recently. Uh, we've been mostly doing uh, uh, early, well, we, we start out doing early warning and then we switch to doing mediation. We've actually been doing both of those. So we've looked at this both from a forecasting uh, uh, perspective, just straight statistical forecasting, and also from a more traditional theory-driven political science uh, thing. So the forecasting stuff was on forecasting conflict mediation, which we have produced. Uh, we've got less stuff out that we just did something in JC, uh, Journal Conflict Resolution over the summer, is, is less developed at this point. But we've done both. Um, what we found on the, on the forecasting is that you get predictive accuracy in the 60 to 80% range using relatively simple methods. Uh, I want to talk briefly about scaling. Uh, the key thing about scaling, the level of detail, is scales don't matter much, and you don't need highly detailed uh, data. And I think this is a major difference between the approach used now and the approach in the 60s. It turns out, uh, and this is good news, because the machine coding is not as good at picking up a lot of detail, but it turns out, at least for forecasting, it, you don't need a lot of detail. And we also found that, for the most part, in mediation work. Yeah. Yeah. Back on the um, accuracy of protracted conflicts, part of what got us interested in doing that initially was that there are a lot of um, human rights organizations um, UNHCR and other entities, that Swiss, Peace Swiss Peace Foundation, who want to be able to know where should they be putting their limited resources and attention. And so even if you're not getting 100% on being able to identify where there's going to be protracted conflict, if you can be giving a heads up to non-governmental and governmental organizations that this looks as though this is a situation where um, we may not be seeing it yet on the ground because the patterns may not be clear, but you may want to be focusing your area experts in these particular regions with greater uh, intensity than you otherwise might. That's what kind of got us interested in doing this initially because it's impossible to be monitoring the whole world, if you're, even if you're Swiss Peace Foundation or the United Nations. Yeah. Yeah, and I would also add, we're, we're the, in terms of policy relevant lead times, you want to get these forecasts need to be at least three months and preferably about six to 12 months out because one month is not enough time to do anything. One, one month from a policy perspective, uh, a policymaker's perspective, a one month forecast is not a forecast, it's an autopsy. It's, you know, here's where we screwed up and what we, we need six or so months, and that's what we've been working on with these. And we want to have, and it's good, the other thing is it's good if you're sometimes wrong here, because if you predict the possibility of a protracted conflict sufficiently far in advance that mediation can keep it from blowing yeah. up, then it looks like you failed, but actually you've succeeded. Yeah. Yeah, from a sure. I, I don't think we've done any of those. We'd like to do more. We'd, yeah. we'd, like, we'd like our models to eventually be wrong all the time. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, Examples I'm going to go through here fairly quickly is we've simply we've started by simplifying the whites categories simply uh, from uh, from 20 odd or 22 categories to five categories non-event basically nothing happened during the period verbal cooperation material cooperation material cooperation before and aid things like that verbal conflict accusations protests and material conflict or acts of violence you just use that simple thing you just do a, a linear regression of your uh, event counts lagged by uh, 
the, uh, the dependent variables leading by 1, 3, 6, and 12 months. Um, you can see in most cases you've got, except for West Africa, you get uh, significant uh, uh, correlations. Not terribly high correlations, uh, but most of them are significant at the you know, 0.0001 level. However, regression analysis is not what most policymakers are concerned with. They practically care less about a regression analysis. What they want to know is, is something going to happen or not? And for that, we want to use the dependent variable, logistic regression. And with it, it's just a dichotomous variable as to whether the level of material conflict is above, and look at two different levels, the 50% and 75% level, at a couple of lead times. If you do an end sample test, you can see, particularly at the six-month level, we're at about 70 80% accuracy. So this is a very simple measure, fully automated coding, et cetera, and you're up at that sort of accuracy level across those three areas. I dropped out West Africa because the, you know, generally what it doesn't look like that in West Africa. Um, if we do out of sample, there's no point in doing in sample because we don't live in an in sample world. Uh, the accuracy drops, but it does not drop dramatically. It drops about 10 to 20 percent. So you're still at a level of about uh, 60 or in some cases, uh, you know, as high as 75 percent uh, on that. That's a one to three sampling three quarters of the, of the uh, or, or sorry, predicting three quarters of the data based on a model estimated on the first quarter. We do a 50-50 out of sample, uh, much higher. Uh, we get up to as high as uh, 80%, uh, not dramatically higher. But again, you're still generally talking this 60-80% range. Is that useful for policymaking? Well, we don't know. The interesting question is how accurate is the average qualitative uh, forecast? And as uh, people like Phil Tetlock's been pursuing this for quite a while, uh, Phil Tetlock's estimate is it's about 50%. And the other thing that, that Tetlock's found is that everybody's really good at explaining why their forecast was right, even though it was clearly wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, my guess is this is, is not, you wouldn't want to depend only on this, but as a supplement to qualitative forecasting, given how inexpensive it is, it might have some utility. I was just going to say, you may want to just jump since yeah, we're I think time I'll to jump. the yeah. Yeah, stuff I, at the end. You know, you folks have to do. Uh, this is a hidden Markov similar sort of thing. We're jumping to is uh, what we know now that we didn't know before. Okay. Yeah. Have you posted it? Um, variations on this approach, right? I'd be happy to send it to you. Just a PowerPoint. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually. Uh, I forget whether I've posted that. We've posted some of them. We've posted assorted versions of yeah. this talk. Yeah, we have about, there's probably, what, 30 papers at least on our website. Yeah. Okay, um, just to summarize um, sort of the takeaway points here of what we know in now, or you know, 2004 now, that we suspected uh, back at the end of the DARPA period, media fatigue, media lose interest in, uh, in events, and, and you've got better coverage at the beginning of something as long as it's dramatic than at the end. Uh, Weiss or things like Weiss, like Cameo, CopDab, and so forth, probably do in fact code most of the uh, relevant political uh, interactions. We haven't come up with any dramatic large amount of stuff that was being missed. Uh, we know that human coding has about a 25% error rate. Uh, this is, uh, we've done some comparison on, on human machine coding. Uh, we know that it is simply impossible for human coders to keep up. And in fact, again, the last human coding, large-scale human coding project was closed down about uh, six months ago, partly because they just couldn't keep up with the data. Uh, 
we know that uh, comments and meetings are about 30 to 50 percent of the data. In other words, the stuff that a lot of what the uh, media covers simply are, are visits, uh, individuals talking to each other because it's easy. And the other thing that they report disproportionately are violent events. And if you're interested in political violence or contentious politics, that's, that's useful. But if you're interested in structural kinds of things, it's yeah. problematic. Right, yeah. I mean, one of the big, yeah, they, they, if you've got a structural problem, like a famine or, you know, your unemployment rate is going up 2% per month or something, that'll show up as a single story where somebody's gone in and said, you know, wherever Rwanda has rising unemployment, everybody's worried, but it's not going to show up on a day-to-day basis the way protests or something will. Okay, stuff that we know now that we didn't know, uh, we can we know now that we can uh, use machine coding to get accuracy as high as human coding accuracy. And I think you wanted to mention that that that's not a, that's not hard to make. In fact, I, I showed this to Russ Lang, uh, the, who did BCAL, and he said, "Why do you keep bragging that you're as good as human coders?" It's better than human yeah, coding. Yeah, I mean, human coders are so awful yeah. that uh, it's and, more consistent, it's more transparent, yeah. it's more um, reliable and it's more valid. Yeah. So I, I think on all those grounds, and we did that in some earlier work. Just we're not just making that claim, but but we did a series of things where I did a lot of field research and compared my field research in the Middle East to what we were getting doing this work to make sure that the stuff was in fact valid yeah. and reliable. Yeah. Um, we've now got, of course, huge, unbelievable amounts of data available on the web for free. You sit at your desk, download it. Uh, we've learned that there are certain categories within why some of these were well-known even in the human coding days, but we uh, that simply cannot be consistently differentiated. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. Uh, and our, uh, things like Cameo and I think to a large extent IDEA have eliminated these, so we're merging categories that can't be differentiated. They are theoretically important. Oh, that's, sorry, yeah. that's really important. They're theoretically important, but they can't be differentiated from new sources because the reporters themselves don't use the words consistently. Right. Yeah. Um, scales and detailed uh, coding add relatively little. Uh, sure mentioned. Uh, we know that news sources vary dramatically. We had expected when we got into this, well, first, there wasn't much of this done in the human coding days because people simply coded a single source, the New York Times. Well, if you don't compare the New York Times to anything else, you don't know whether it's you know, biased or oh, I mean, you've got a sense that it's biased. But, uh, whereas what we had expected to find, we started coding international and, and regional and local sources. Uh, so, you know, major uh, Reuters, a major national level newspaper and then local papers, we'd expect that they would be concentric circles, that the international would code the least, the regional would code somewhat more, and the uh, local would code all sorts of stuff. Doesn't work that way. They are intersecting, you know, Venn diagram uh, type things that uh, sometimes an international source will pick up something you don't find in the local uh, paper, maybe because the government is suppressing it, maybe because the reporters were out covering something else the other day. It's, it's complicated. And then trying to merge these things is another uh, issue that it's, we still haven't really, we're, this, this issue of splicing so, uh, data from multiple sources is something I, that we're trying to deal with, but it's hard. Um, and then finally, that we want regionally specific data sets because they give us more detail than the global sets. I think I'll just stop there and uh, we'll be happy to take uh, questions.
a little louder. Okay. A remedial question before I get to the subject of events. Educate me about the difference between and Cameo. Oh. Uh, Cameo is the coding system. Tabari is the program. Yeah. Right. And, the t- and the two are completely... The Tabari can code any system that you can write dictionaries for. Whereas Cameo is a specific thing. But, but yeah, the two are kind of... So think of it as the same as... Um, I mean, we still call it the KEDS project, but KEDS versus WISE. Right. Okay. Substantive question. Yeah. Substantive question. Um, what you are calling your policy level... Policy relevant to land prediction that you gave the data um, You're, in effect, it's, it's time series and there aren't separate independent, am I correct in saying there aren't separate independent there? So it's in effect, let's see what we can do six months out in terms of this pattern predicting to that. Uh, we did some of that earlier, but now uh, the examples I gave earlier, there's an explicit independent or dependent variable of the level of conflict. Okay, but what is the independent variable? Uh, the independent variables in, in those studies were the other types of activity going on in the system. I mean, it's a very simple, it's not a, it, it's a data mining model. Yeah, you can improve on The question then becomes, are any of the variables in the independent variable category ones which presumably one we're thinking about policy relevance one could classify as being manipulable by some type of government or not? Yeah, I mean, a good example, the JCR article, we looked at mediation success, and we were looking at what we call the sticks and carrots model. If you're trying to reduce conflict, is it better to engage in threatening, typically verbally threatening, not militarily threatening, uh, you know, quiet down kids or I'll smack you in the international arena, or is it quiet down kids, yeah, quiet down kids and we'll stop at McDonald's. Uh, so, and again, this is, you know, it, it, it's Colin Powell talking to the Israelis and Palestinians. Um, and that, those were very explicitly a, and it turns out it's a combination of the, of the two. Uh, and uh, Goldstein and Piva House also did some stuff on that in Boston, on uh, Serbia. Right, and then Goldstein, yeah. Piva House, Gerner, and Hilhami also yeah. did some triangular stuff. Yeah. Um, so trying that, to look at that. That would be an example. Yeah. Um, I, I knew all this. It's very interesting. I guess I was struck by a couple of things. So, um, first, even though you've moved away from the nation state model, um, there is a lot of anthropomorphism in these categories. You have various kinds of groups, mm-hmm. NGOs, and so on, interacting like their people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I guess I'm wondering how do you understand that? Is that just a metaphor? If so, why that metaphor? How is it some other metaphor? And if not a metaphor, Mm-hmm. That's question one. The other one is um, I'm wondering about what events are. Um, at various points in your talk, it sounds like events are out there in the world, and newspapers may more or less accurately reflect those events or pick them up. Other times, it sounds like newspapers themselves are the secret events. Um, so I'm wondering who decides what events are, um, and how do we know what events are? I guess beyond what we Second part. Yeah, let me try to speak to the, the, what is an event, because I think this is our biggest, uh, I think it's the biggest weakness of event data coding myself, and Phil and I debate this, but um, for the purpose of what we do, an event doesn't happen if it isn't reported in a public source, and we're thoroughly aware 
that that leaves out tons of work, which is why we're always stressing that this should be combined with other kinds of research rather than being the only kind of research. An event is something that a newspaper or other public source reports, that X does something to Y. Um, so it leaves out anything structural, as we mentioned. It leaves out things which are secret. It leaves out a lot. Um, but it also gives us a big picture. Um, and gives us some clues about where we might want to look in more detail for some of the other kinds of things. Now, your first question, though, was about metaphors and... Yeah. yeah. We, we can, for the most part, we... Yeah, I mean, you're completely right that the international relations literature in general anthropomorphizes... Uh, and, and, and we're trying to get away from yeah, that. Yeah, we're, we're trying to get away from that. And I think particularly dealing explicitly with sub-state actors is uh, so uh, just in our own Israel-Palestine, uh, you know, Palestinians attacked Israeli settlers. Well, was it Hamas who attacked it or was it, Palestine, was it somebody that, you know, nobody had ever heard of or was it the Palestinian PA authority police, et cetera, getting that sort of differentiation. Um, one of the advantages of automated coding, though, is if we want to go down to the individual level, we can actually do that very easily. And we, I did a nothing much happened with it, but I did a little test to see whether you could differentiate distinct mediation styles between various U.S. Uh, secretaries of state, because they've all tried their hand at the Israel-Palestine conflict, with great success, as you all noticed. Uh, and I just wanted to look at, you know, particularly sticks and carrots type issues. And yeah, you could, you could differentiate those individuals, and you know, hypothetically, you could you know, it, uh, put that into your model. So I, I think it, but but yeah, the overall, yeah, sure, it buys into that particular mode. I mean, we're still, even though we've moved a great distance from Weiss and from the old style event coding, I think we're products of the fact that that's both how we were trained. And so we're pulling ourselves in a direction that is different from the way either of us were trained. So one example of that is that our actor codes now for an actor. We can either code um, an actor in one way, like a state, which is very anthropomorphic. We can code with... We like, experimented for a while looking at state role of individual. So Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon is an Israeli, he's a Prime Minister, yes, and he's Ariel Sharon. He's held basically every known position in the Israeli government at various points in time. Or, or Bucha Scholar. Right. Yeah. That was less successful, but yeah. we've now been trying to, um, what's the now, the, the three different categories that we, we've got more than that, because we've got religious. Yeah, we stuck ethnicity in. We there, put ethnicity in, we've got religion in, we've got um, location in in various ways. So we've been trying to deal some with the issue that you're raising. It doesn't fully address uh, your critique at all, but it does allow us to be a lot more subtle in um, how we're identifying actors than we once were. I didn't actually mean it as a critique. I think, I mean, a lot of people think might see it as a critique. I think actually the practice is justified, but it's hard to justify. So I was wondering what your intuitive understanding was about the yeah, and I think our intuitive understanding is that um, when states operate as states, then that's how they are operating, whether we agree or disagree with them. And, and we're not trying to get at, in this 
particular project. We're not trying to get at things like the decision-making processes. We're leaving that to other people. But we're certainly aware that this isn't the whole picture. Yeah, it's alien to him, or new to him, alien to me. Uh, so I want to go back to events and, and what you said about the less the public. Um, I, I don't understand quite how you go about coding, but so here's the event. Um, uh, highwayman kill, kills King at the crossroad. Um, uh, unfortunate accident at the crossroad. Um, son kills father at the crossroad. I mean, it's the same event, even if it's killing his father. Do you find it in three different ways? One way? I mean, how, how do you go about you know, looking at the public description of the, as it were, metaphysical events, I mean, use the term. How do you sort for that? In general, I, I think one of the keys is that we're, we're looking for is patterns over thousands of events. And so any, obviously, if one goes in and tries, looks at a single event and tries to pursue it in all of its complexity and so forth, you would get one picture and you would get multiple interpretations and Rashomon and all that. Um, if you, that's not what we're doing. We're up at this sort of, uh, we're, we're, we're looking down, you know, from from uh, not a god's eye view, but we're we're uh, five thousand feet above the landscape, looking at here's a patch of forest, and here's a patch of forest, and there's something green in between there, and it might be wheat, and it might be corn. We're not sure which. Uh, we're not down there at the ground where you know in the second we could tell whether it was wheat or corn coming from Kansas. Uh, we're at that that higher level. Well, in fact, a good example yeah. of that. What was bush firing on? Oh yes, yeah, we got We have a we keep a list of strange things that um, miscoded. get miscoded for weird reasons, and one was bush fires. Yeah, it, it, we got a uh, U.S. act of violence against Germany. Right, and, and it, it was, turned out it was a Reuters report that was bush fires in somewhere in Germany, Berlin, or something, or which was brush fires is how it would normally be in English. Well, but bush was interpreted bush as president. Bush was interpreted as president, <laughs> fires was interpreted as force, yeah. and so suddenly the United States was engaging in force yeah. against Germany. Yeah. But when you're dealing, yeah. but when you're dealing with thousands, right, <laughs> but when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of events rather than just one, it just becomes part of the noise, and it disappears. It becomes irrelevant. Part of Alan's question, though, is you're going to accept that Roy, you're going to get a source says it is. In other words, if Roy says it's a highwayman, it's coded as a highwayman. Not really. Again, you usually don't. That, that's where a highwayman would not be coded. I can't say that. Or a gunman. Roy says King does X. Yours takes King, and just on a fundamental level, right. it's not a rivetech, but you're really, it's really a code, not a question mark, it's a code taking the text that's there. Yes. Right. Yeah, and so literal, that's, that's the answer. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, so it's a single sentence. We've done um, full text coding, and we've done paragraph coding, but generally it's the lead sentence, which gives you the who did what to whom. Yeah. And it's true that that, too, has all sorts of built-in biases which is why using local sources is useful, although then you have a splicing problem, why we've played around with using, we've used Reuters, we've used AFP, why we've done the validation studies. It's all because we realize that these are sources where there's a bias implicit in the source. Now, one caveat, we're far better off using 
news wire feeds, the newspapers, for the reason that Phil pointed out. Because the news um, wire reporters just keep chunking out the stories, whether or not they show up in the newspapers. Whereas, for instance, there was um, a period during the first Palestinian uprising where there was some absolutely fascinating um, nonviolent action going on um, with tax resistance, and it was in the papers, and it was great, and it was so interesting, and then the Berlin Wall fell. And it just went off the newspapers completely, but it was still being reported by the, the newswire services. So that's why we've chosen to use newswire services rather than newspapers, because they're not affected by the page limitations, they're not affected by other big stories, they're not affected by it's coming up to Christmas and Hanukkah, and so more of the papers being spent on advertising space. Those reporters are just out there putting the stories out repeatedly, whether or not they get picked up by the newspaper. So that gives us somewhat greater accuracy than if we were relying on newspapers. I think the variation that you mentioned is, is less problematic in, in many respects, given the sources that they're using, because commercial mainstream newspapers tend to tell the same type of stories. Uh, so Michael Schutzen's work on the sociology and news production and so forth identifies that they generally typically have the same kind of understandings of events within the news media itself, these values are distributed. The influence of Western media globally is generally homogenizing how people are tending to see these things. So you generally see you're not seeing those kind of variations in that area. You might see some differences if you use like radical alternative newspapers and so forth. They would then have greater variations in some of the classifications and then you might see some variation there. But but generally given the sources that that it would be in a newswire in the first place, you know, Which is precisely part of why this workshop that we're part of is so interesting because it's trying to say how can we take this work and combine it with some of these other approaches that would give us a different cut on the same set of events. We don't have any illusion that this is the reality. It's a reality. Question? Two questions. One that might be easier than the other. To what extent do you take the spoken word of the news media as opposed to the printed word, meaning radio and television instead of Reuters and other wire services? And then to follow up on something you said in the presentation about foreign languages, I wonder if you could explain more fully what you're doing or what others are doing with languages like German or Russian or Arabic. Um, and can you use that kind of work? to compare to your own, or to corroborate your own, or do you find that it comes up with different results? Um, on, on the first one, we have not worked with spoken media. There, there is a, there are groups out there that are working with this. Uh, you can actually do it with automated methods uh, for Western media that are closed captioned, because in fact there's a text that, that is coming. Albeit inaccurate. Uh, yeah, albeit with odd spelling. If you ever watch this, uh, but um, and you know eventually we'll get it to a point where the speech recognition will work well enough. Uh, you know, there's fewer events. Yeah, they're far, far. Yeah, the the. Information density in, in spoken and visual media is vastly, or the, the uh, number of separate events is, is much, much less. Um, the, the second on, on other languages, my, my way of characterizing this is if Noam Chomsky is right about linguistics, leaving aside what you think about Noam Chomsky on politics, um, it should be possible to use these on any language. In other words, and uh, a lot of the stuff is, again, to the Chomsky view of, gra of universal grammar. Uh, you would have a few little switches like subject, uh, subject adjective, or sorry, noun adjective uh, 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 ordering and things like that. But you could, 
given enough money and enough time, you could probably design a system that would handle multiple languages. And of course, the vocabulary is going to be different. Uh, but there's no reason in principle this wouldn't work for other languages. And we've done a little bit in German. The Panda Project did some stuff in Spanish. Uh, and it would be fascinating yeah. if somebody were to do exactly the comparison you're talking about. It's just we're a really small shop. I mean, this is this is Phil and I, yeah. and a few students. And um, what we've got is like all we can handle and then some. But it would be great, I think, and really, really interesting to have someone who were to code a similar time period, a similar region in a different language and make those comparisons. I think it would be absolutely fascinating. I'd love it if someone did that. We'd, we'd love to do Hebrew and Arabic on the Middle East and, and look at that, compare that to the English language. I was kind of thinking that yeah. if that yes. happens in, say, Jerusalem, Mr. Yeah. Perkin in Arabic or Hebrew or English, right. yeah. it's very, very different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it would be fascinating. We simply don't have the time um, or money or staff to do it. But if anyone else wants to do it, yeah. we would love to collaborate with you. It's open source code. Anyway. Open so everything we do on principle is open and available to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Or AFP. AFP now. AFP now is what oh, we're oh, using. Front press. Yeah. Is, did you look to see if there's a difference between AFP and Reuters? You know, some of the discussions that are going on here. What if Yeah, the, the, the problem you run, I'll, I'll talk about this, the, the problem you run into, the, the major source of error or de, uh, variation in this is not that one person said the guy shook the hand of the king and the other person said the guy killed the king. It's that one person report, one source reports and the other source doesn't. It's censoring in the statistical sense, not in, well, there's also in the political sense. It's the absence of reports that are what what affect things. But here's some examples of AFP and Reuters that... that uh, it's one of our big that. challenges. Um, you can see for the Levant, it's not bad. You probably can't see a lot of these. But the, the bars here, these are the various uh, white... Look, they should look identical? They should look identical. These aren't bad for the Levant. You go to the Balkans, and there's wild differences. Again, I don't know if you can see it, but here are these little bitty bars. These are the uh, uh, cooperative uh, Weiss categories on uh, AFP two or three times higher in general the coverage on uh, uh, Reuters. Reuters really covered the Balkans well. AFP did not, which was counterintuitive. On all the, the, the U.S. government, I find, finding out, hates AFP because, after all, it's got the evil word France in it. Uh, but you, know, what, what you would have thought if these are, are you know, lackeys of the French, you know, they'd be you know, covering the Balkans uh, in more detail. It didn't work that way. Another example, this was from a paper that I did at ISA last year, uh, for the fast. We were looking at the number of stories we found just using the Nexus search string, uh, Palestinian killed, and I forget what the period was. Um, the most stories we found was AFP, 18 stories. The LA Times, under identical period, only had three. New York Times, you know, the great gray lady, only had four. 
Jerusalem Post, curiously, only had six. Yeah, but uh, the first <laughs> We all know about the church. There are probably a lot of people here. And here, what you basically find, this is a death count from uh, uh, Palestine Red Crescent. You got a large uh, event that involved a large number of deaths, like this one. Everybody covers it. But if it's low level, you get kind of sporadic coverage. So, for example, the Washington Post and the New York Times both covered four story, four of these events, but they weren't the same four. Two of them overlapped and then two didn't. And that's, again, this triangulating among multiple sources. But it's the lack of reporting that's the big problem. And then the one other real challenge is that um, AFP reports Oh yes. Much this, this more is, detail. It, they report the same story repeatedly as right. they get more detail over the day, much more so than does Reuters. And so we've had to filter when we use AFP. And the risk of filtering, of course, is that if you have the identical actor A doing the identical action to actor B on two different occasions on the same day. We lose that, but we lose. But what we lose is far less than the overcounting we get with AFP reporting. Each time they get one little extra bit of information, they put on another news story, and so suddenly you have AFP showing, you know, 20 Palestinians killed when it was really just one, but but it's reported 20 different times, and so we now filter AFP um, to avoid that problem. But we still have not, it's one of our challenges, is we still have not fully figured out how to splice together Reuters and AFP because we got about four years overlap. Uh, no, we have ten years. Ten years of overlap. But AFP goes, I mean, sorry, Reuters goes back for the Palestine question all the way back to 79. And we want to be able to go back that far, but AFP doesn't go back that far. So we're trying to figure out how to splice accurately so that we can get a time series that's actually meaningful for 30 some years. Follow up. 35 not, years. Again, it's not to make more work for you. I need somebody. Are you volunteering? Yeah, right. Could you fund it? To yeah. investigate with AFP and New York Times why there is this
and we've met a number of times with both groups and feel pretty good about their accounting um, in both cases. Um, I don't know how others of you feel about their accounting, but we feel like they're both pretty good, accurate sources. So, um, but I still think it's an interesting question. Um, but we do. But but it, but it, my point is that we have a kind of external validation of how many Israelis and how many Palestinians are killed. Um, and Beit Salem reports both Palestinian and Israeli deaths. Um, Palestine Red Crescent reports oh only Palestinian deaths. I mean, there's going to be some noise, but the likely. I mean, I'd be sure. I, I, I need to talk to more government people and see what what are they upset about with AFP. Well, they they clearly are. Yeah. Maybe, no, and, and now they are for new reasons because AFP, they're the French. Yeah. <laughs> AFP's changed dramatically over the last ten years because they became a private corporation. They and Reuters has gone down. Gone. You know, there's literally entire books written about how Reuters has gone downhill because of corporate reasons and stuff. And AFP may be a lot better now than it once was. But we're not finding cases where everybody agrees that everything is sweetness and light and, and lovey-dovey, and AFP's out there making up, you know, massacres that didn't exist. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the problem, as you say, is more it, it's of one covering and the other all. not covering rather than them covering in different ways. Yeah. Is that active or passive voice? In other words, oh, it picks up both. Okay, but what I'm saying is that if some of those were active voice, Palestinian killed other object person versus person who is Palestinian was killed. Oh, um, I mean, are you, are you getting both of those in there? I mean, we may have got it. If you do a search thing, you could come up with either, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Uh, no, I think on the this one, I actually scanned the actual story. Oh, I, the, the actual story. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, because it's still going to be Palestinian killed oh, by yeah, X, and so Palestinian it's still gonna... killed a settler sort of thing. Yeah. Um, those particular ones, I, I, we, I weeded those out manually. Yeah, you yeah, can... Otherwise, you can yeah. see that those biases would be yeah, particularly... Yeah, right. yeah tabar in, in the Tabari coding, we have rules in there to handle passive voice and, and subject and object reversal and, and stuff so like that. Yeah, that's all. Yes, sir. If you're quoting, let's uh, say, numerous sub-state actors, and yet there's also state actors who are involved in that, how do you bring this all to say you have an event, uh, Hamas, bombs, such and such, and then you also have, you're also this is a Palestinian mm -hmm. as an actor's yeah, that's where that's where your coding dictionaries and your your level of analysis becomes important. So, if for example you just want to study only Hamas and only when Hamas is identified by the news source, and that's going to eliminate unnamed gunmen and, and or unidentified gunmen and so forth. Uh, yeah, you're going to miss a Hamas attack will be reported in some stories as Palestinians kill settlers or whatever. And in other but cases, some Hamas, Hamas gunmen kill settlers. And yeah, you're going to get, you got to decide on the level of analysis. But that's why it's important that we've got now this nine digit, so we have the ability to code Palestinian, Hamas, these different categories. So depending on what kind of analysis we want to do, we can either just pull out all Palestinians or all Hamas. It's not 2.30, but it is way past oh, 1 or 1.15 where we normally stop. So I want to thank uh, Thank you guys for staying. Thank you guys for the workshop. Thank you. If you have other questions, just...
bring them up one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Thanks for staying Thank around, you guys. Thanks for staying. That it stills a few parts. Oh, okay. You did. Yeah. Yeah. So you might as well keep this. Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 Has uh, nothing to do with the structural system level. No, 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 no. Um, I wasn't clear if that. What I was trying to say was simply that um, our data set is trying to stretch the limit away from simply relying on the 90s and expand more generally. And that in addition, we're trying to find ways to put in structural barriers. I mean, that was what I wrote you. So, for instance, in Cameo, we have ways of talking about things like house demolitions. Um, which is a more, which is closer to something structural. It isn't exactly structural, but it's closer to structural than anybody else is doing. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my impression is yes, like uh, Israeli Palestinian conflict is uh, no, no, no difference from the border structure and Ah, uh, whereas I think there, it is different. Uh, I think it is different. Yeah, I do think it's different. Partly because um, the Israel-Palestine conflict has really become an Israel-Palestine conflict, whereas before the Cold War, it was an Arab-Israeli conflict. And uh, with the end of the Cold War and the lack of support that Syria and Iraq in particular were getting from the Soviet Union, there was far more pressure on those actors to um, um, pull back. So Syria then joins the United States in the war against Iraq, for instance. Um, and it has been kind of collapsed into being an Israel-Palestine conflict much more than it was before. Yeah. Um, See, yeah. the, the problem, Thank you for the your problem that splicing thing is that AFP is expanding their own writings, and they're basically, you know, as a company, and, and they're privatizing it. Reuters is moving out of the news business into the financial services business. Oh, well, wonderful. And I'm sorry, I have nothing with so, me. Well, maybe I do. Now, on the other hand, there's this underlying reality that they're both reflected. Oh, thank and it you may so much. Let me see if I have a point as well. Reuters is picking up 80% of what goes on in AFP. It's picking up 50%. And by 2002, it's reversed. Yeah, because we have not done work at all uh, on Korea. And, um, yeah, and, and it's we really started with what we knew best, which was I knew the Middle East and And we thought that that was a good way to begin. Um, but we feel more confident now after doing this for 12 years. We, well, that's why we started doing North Africa, the Balkans, and other areas. But we first had to be sure that the concept worked. We may not be doing that after all. Exactly. So that's why Started with the Middle East so that we could be sure that we knew what we were doing. Anyway, there's my part. Thank you so much. It was great pleasure to meet you. Yeah. Thank you for coming to the talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Oh, yeah. Okay
and and just do a search for Lebanil and see what we were coding as Lebanil, and it'll be Lebanese, or actually, I think that was military. It's either military or military. Uh-huh. What, what I tried to do is combine those. Yeah. Also, I wasn't sure if those are also included in the just Lev, because there is a category for oh, that. Oh, no, we would only code, so. uh, no, we only code a single uh, active target pair from the right. beginning of that. So, uh, if it said Lev, it goes back to Alex's comment that, that it, it would say, you know, Lebanese talked with Syria or something like that, or Lebanese officials in Syria. So there's no, but our codings on that are not. What I was hoping to get, especially for, for those, it's interesting to see, you know, what's, probably Lebanon's a bad example because it's not really. Lebanon is really hard to, yeah. Thing just came out. What? The sticks of carrots thing. The JCR thing. Yeah, that was the summer. Yeah, it was a June. Do aggregation, and I know it includes wildcard aggregation. 
coverage of Syria, any anything about Syria is, is very weak in Reuters and AFP. We haven't had much, we haven't tried to do much with that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, do you have questions? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. So I'm thinking of arguing that sometimes sticks actually consistent with what we found in what the, in the article. Find, we, we found, uh, I'm trying to remember because I did the article like three years ago, and uh, or we did the article. Um, we found that generally, let's see, we were we looked at, we, we basically looked at the Levant and we looked at, at the Formula Sonics. And if I remember correctly, 
Oh, yes, I remember what we found. This, this is, it wasn't quite as clean as this, but it was, it was heading in this direction, is that the best strategy was sticks towards the more powerful actor and carrots towards the weaker actor. So you threaten Bosnia, but you offer support to, or I'm sorry, you threaten Serbia, you offer support to Bosnia. Uh, you threaten Israel, uh, and you offer support to Lebanon. The one place that didn't work was the Palestinians, and I think that was because of the close U.S.-Israel uh, relationship. But we also looked at I'm remembering the design. We also looked at the uh, we looked at the U.S., Europe taken as a whole, and uh, the UN as separate mediators, and uh, came up with slightly different results. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and the the other group, the the other article you should definitely look at is, yeah. is Goldstein and Piva House, and then the one that Misty mentioned. The, Goldstein, Piva, Housker, and Ernst because they were looking at uh, the same set of issues. The first article was on the former Yugoslavia, and the second was on the front. And again, my memory is, I think the Goldstein and Piva House, what they were particularly interested in, what they did find is that to be successful, you don't deal with Serbia the same way you deal with Croatia, which... Again, makes and of course, if you did that across a number of different conflicts, you might start to be able to find some characteristics that tell you these are people that you have to you know, threaten to, to you know sanctions against versus the others are ones that you can negotiate to or you, can, you can make promises to. Well, you guys have to get to the yes. work. Good so to see you. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, yeah. Right. I got to finish now. This is my hideaway thing. But oh, yeah. good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. I yeah. I'm, I'm astounded, given the place in the Misty, that she's hanging in there today. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's, she's my her. hero. Well, I can't well, believe she's, 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 she's still Misty. hanging. She's still <laughs> hanging. Exactly. Yeah, well, I decided I was going to harass her when she said, can you see over my head? I almost yelled back, Misty, you're short. But there were too many other people who didn't know that we were really going to harass her. This is how we we throw job candidates off. Good to see you. Okay, great. Oh, are you here in this building? Yeah, I, my headlight is right here. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I, I spent half my time and half time. That's, that's wise. Yeah. yeah, okay, so I'm going to try to press on and see what I can do with okay. that. Okay, yeah, um, just keep in touch by I'd email. Like, I'd still like to get the AFP data, though, yeah. before... Yeah, I'll uh, try to get that done when I, when I can, but it's going to be... What, what, mm -hmm. Are you talking about a thesis that's due at the end of the year, or right. the end of the academic year? Or the right. end? And, and oh, okay, so we got time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I, I, you know, this is yeah, I understand. Of this, so, yeah. But I, I was just wondering if, if it's... What, what exactly do you have to do? Do you have a, the file... You said you had the files downloaded? Yeah, we, we've got all the raw so. text already downloaded. I've just never done anything. And it's just a case when I get around to... And, you yeah, know, what I would normally do... If it was not for intellectual property issues, I'd just say, well, I'll send you the files, but I can't do that legally, and we're trying to stay on the, on the you know, this side so of the law. Uh, okay. If there was some, yeah. I was wondering if I could run it myself. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, well, do you, you guys have access to Nexus here, don't you? Uh, you should be able to run our scripts. It would only take two or three hours to download all that stuff. Okay. You, you have the next because we've got scripts. Oh, the scripts. I'm not quite sure how you access oh, that. yeah, we've got. If you go onto our data site and look under, actually, they're mostly called text filters. There's a program there called Nexus Filter that's got two or three pages of documentation about how it works and how you use it, and it's the sort of workhorse program that we have. And I know 
people at Texas A&M have used it, and people at Wisconsin have used it, so it probably also works here. And with that, what you do is you go on, you know, you log on to LexisNexis, and you find, and you can, and you come up with the search thing. And LexisNexis, you can uh, yeah. uh, identify up to a thousand stories. So you uh, point your you you get the address of the first story in that list of a thousand stories. And what this program does is it goes through and it reads. It, it's as if you were sitting there at the computer, saving the story, hitting the next button, and it does that until it runs out of stories. And then what you've got at the end of that is a file with the text of all that story neatly formatted and all the HTML is out of it and stuff like that. What is this? It's called Nexus Filter. What is the script in? It's a Perl. Perl? Yeah. And Perl is a fan. If it's it's a it's a weird language, but it's fantastic for, uh, you know, it's a, the, that whole program is you know, two or three hundred lines of that of Perl, right. and, and it does all that sort of stuff, yeah. Right. Uh, and it's, it's our workhorse for, so when we've got a download for the Swiss Peace Foundation, uh, you know, I sit down and in ten minutes download, you know, two thousand stories for, uh, for, you know, the last three months in the Middle East. And assuming that works here, but the worst it would have, is and I should also add it's all legal. Uh, the uh, you know you might need to do a little bit of modifications because your system might be slightly different than ours. But I doubt that our system your system's probably identical to ours. Okay. So if, if I do that myself, then um, then I'll you're fine on the intellectual property. The uh, <laughs> the Tabari, as far as that goes. Yeah, you can just run Tabari with the existing dictionaries, and it's just the case of giving. Tabari, a list of the files that you want read, you can take our existing dictionaries okay. and get your data. So, so should I just take the ones that are included with the Levine yeah. uh, distribution? Yeah. Or we've got a slightly more updated one, but that would be close enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and I was just wondering how, how exactly that's different from the new thing that you have, the, what's it called, Cami? Oh, the, the dictionaries that you've got are, are coding into Weiss rather okay. than Cameo. Though I right. think we may have released a cameo dictionaries as well. I, I'd have to work on the website. I'm just kind of wondering what would be the best to use. I don't really know too much of the Probably at this point you'd be better off using Weiss. Weiss. Probably. Just because Weiss has more of a track record. Uh, I mean, we would use cameo, but we're just still experimenting with it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll uh, look into that. Okay. Then. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so the two explanatory variables that I have uh -huh. um, that come out from that model mm -hmm. is one, the potential of rally effects okay. on uh -huh. the opponent's side. Right. So you don't want to offer only scopes if your opponent right. has them. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is um, reputation for being a revision in state. Hmm. Okay. So the more of a reputation you have, uh -huh. So in likely you will get things peacefully so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's that's something that will right. make it more likely. So these two things I think make it more more likely that carrots and sticks. Right. Um, if these are low, I wanna say that there's more clear stuff mm -hmm. and small just sticks. Uh -huh. And so this would be prior to the crisis Mm -hmm. Is that right? Because mm -hmm. I would have to figure these out uh, a priori before crisis, because so far yes, my right. analysis yeah. is just of crisis. Okay, yeah, whereas we're doing it, we're looking at protracted conflicts, which are slightly different. So, mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, and you're st are you still using the BCAL or something like BCAL? Yeah, but BCAL yeah. I think would be only good for getting this right. and connecting that to more compromised right. outcomes. Yeah, but yeah. To get to this step, the first step, yeah. I guess um, I think I need to go prior to crisis. Yeah. Have you looked so at Have you looked at the ICB uh, International Crisis Behavior? Yeah. Is there not anything there that's usable for? Not really for yeah. Yeah, that's right. But I can yeah. um, yeah. not that it's immediately clear to me. Yeah, that's that that's what I was. No, I, I you're probably correct that there's not. Do you think that it's uh, possible that in your data I would be able to look at uh, this connection more likely or no? Uh, this is going to be hard to get. Reputational effects are going to be hard to get at. Um, I don't immediately see how you would get that out of your event data. There may be a way, or there may be a way of getting something that is, you know, is an instrument for those of mm -hmm. some sort. But I don't. Nothing's jumping out of me immediately. Yeah. This is that would probably be easier to do than that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because one of the things you could look at, I suppose, on this is um, the extent to which. A uh, interactions directed at at the uh, uh, opponent generate additional support for the opponent from elsewhere in the international community. Or is that what you were thinking in terms of rally? No, no, effect? rally effect domestically. Oh, domestically. So when oh. you when you oh, I see. Yeah, state, right. Yeah, domestically. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we don't really have that information. Uh, okay. You do to a limited extent, but not, you know, again, we would be, yeah. Do you have any idea what data I could look at to make these sorts of associations? Um, the little, or is it just to be not I think you would do it. You'd, have to, you'd probably actually have to go back to the call, you know, the case studies, the, the qualitative. Um, that's why. What, yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't thinking. Yeah. yeah. What, what? How many crises are you looking at? Well, there's like 49. 49. Yeah. yeah right. Um, and that's only after the crisis. Right. Before. Before. Um, do you know if anybody has made these arguments at least about parasites? No, actually, I don't. I mean, it, it, this is an inter this this one. I mean, you know, there's a huge literature on this. On uh, this, and well, actually, there's a huge literature on both, both of them. But I, but um, really, there's on, a on huge the, literature. On well, I'm thinking of this on the the old, the uh, you know what so-called internal external hypothesis um, in international relations that uh, is slightly different. But the notion that uh, that countries engage in in uh, in uh, Threatening behavior in order. Well, I suppose in that sense it is direct. Uh, uh, there's a good article in the Handbook of War Studies by Jack Levy that does a good review, literature review of that up to about you know, maybe five or ten years ago. Mm, uh, okay. Handbook of War Studies, uh, by, or the second edition. Yeah, two I've seen that. And Levy's article is as good as any. And I hadn't thought of it before, but to a certain extent, not so much on carrots, but on sticks, mm -hmm. you could argue that's exactly what it's not exactly as close to what that hypothesis is, that uh, hmm. Hmm. that so would be relevant. Now, it's not exactly what you're looking at, but it would be relevant. Relevant yeah. paper. 
Okay. So, uh, yeah, I've seen this book, that definitely. Um, yeah, and I think Levy actually has a book on the study of that as well. Yeah. What about this uh, reputation for being a revisionist? That I can't think of anything. Uh, but I don't know that literature that much. Yeah. Okay, so w does that mean that I should um, probably abandon this out of my dissertation? No, not necessarily. Just because nobody else has done it doesn't mean you know, well, no, because be so many people have done it. Oh, no, I would say they, they're not doing exactly what you're doing. It's, it's. I think this literature is related to what you're doing. No, I, I think the opposite. I think the fact that you're linking, that you can use this literature to inform this particular hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But it, no, it's not that it's already been done. No, oh, no, okay. no, quite the opposite. I think there is stuff you could do with that. Okay. Yeah. Nothing comes to mind. Nothing comes to mind to me, but there there may be some others. Yeah. There may be some stuff out there. And you can't really suggest any particular data source, case studies that If it's not an ICB is is the closest I could think of. And yeah, I but I'm afraid I think you're right that ICB doesn't. And of course that's only 20th century crises. I mean they've got these, you know anecdotal descriptions of the crisis in there, but I, I, I'm not that familiar with the data. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also crises. Right? Yeah, you right. Sort of look at and you're looking prior to the crisis. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, and nothing. No, not, not the coding stuff. Uh, not, yeah. not any uh, looking at uh, stuff that, like, why is that one happening? Probably not. Probably. Uh, oh. <laughs> okay. Because you're, you're getting on both of those. You're getting more on the rep yeah it's not really event type stuff it's more reputational or internal and again Weiss and Cockdale don't really have internal data except for a small number of cases yeah do you know if when politicians look at this stuff um, what can they have to to, to, to do look at uh, to make these judgments you know if yeah. yeah. create a rally in um, right support of Yeah, I think more than anything else, they look at analogy, you know, past mm -hmm. analogy, either direct and you know, the prior history of, of the case, uh, you know, uh, of that particular country, uh, and then, you know, the standard thing, there's fairly large literature that Don Silvan's very acquainted with of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of the use of, of analogies as, as, a, as heuristics. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I actually of a, should talk to him about this particular yeah. question because I haven't talked to him yeah. for a while. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, because... Okay. Yeah, that, because, okay. yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, this is an important question. It's a very important question, and it's... Uh, the carrots and sticks. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's fair. Um, let me just look at Iraq. Or look yeah. at Iraq versus Afghanistan. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes sticks will work. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just okay. That is an interesting. I mean, an interesting question is, yeah, are they basically doing sort of a, a blank slate type? Okay, we're looking at the following characteristics, and based on this, we think one or the other is mm -hmm. going to work. Or are they going? My guess is that it's a. It's probably a combination of two things. It's. It's a combination of the prior experience with the with okay. the actor they're trying to influence. Um, 
and it may also be, and this you could do with event data, is there may be a pattern, and I don't know how quickly the frequency would be, of you try sticks, and if that doesn't work, you switch to carrots, and if that doesn't work, you switch back to sticks. Um, but whether you try it for a year or six mm -hmm. months or two decades, I don't know. Uh, if you look at the U.S.-Soviet relations mm -hmm. in the Cold War, the, the period was probably about 15 years. So, yeah. and, um, I wonder if these sorts of questions aren't better scope conditions that are the uh, way we practice yeah. Into just the conflict, into just interactions that exist between actors that don't really have a path, extensive path, uh, the way that the uh, U.S. and Soviets yeah. have such an extensive path that everything right. was embedded in this. You're right. You're right. So what do you do? With Iraq, perhaps that was less so for the U.S. Yeah. But Afghanistan, of course, Afghanistan is so strange because it's right after 9-11. So uh, I guess I'm trying to think of some other. I mean, that, <laughs> that particular thing is one of the things that makes uh, the former Yugoslavia so interesting, yeah. is that suddenly but Europe is confronted with states that it had not had any experience with since you know, World War I, yeah. and that was pre-World War I was irrelevant. Um, mm. uh, and, you know, another interesting case is, is all of the former Soviet Union. What do you do with Ukraine? Mm -hmm. uh, well, how do you deal with uh, Kazakhstan and nuclear weapons, which was a, success, a case where there was successful use of uh, carrots? And you know, here's a state that didn't exist, and mm -hmm. you've got a major problem. So one possibility might be to look at some of those cases like, I mean, if you take, and thought of this before, but if you take the problem of disarmament of Belarus, Ukraine, and, and Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. something that you could either do by providing incentives, which is what they did, or by mm -hmm. threatening. Um, yeah. And and so what? How did the United States and the Europeans decide to go the route that they did, uh, rather than whereas? Uh, or another case, and I'm just trying to think of cases at the moment is is dealing with the Taliban, where the carrots did not work, mm -hmm. uh, even though the Taliban were originally, you know, as long as they were fighting the Soviets, were, were, we're uh, interested uh, in were the, yeah, the, yeah, the U.S. was giving them, you know, yeah, how do you switch from carrots to sticks? Uh, but, yeah. Or Nicaragua, the mm -hmm. U.S. involvement with Nicaragua, which was the sticks and carrots thing. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it, it, it's definitely it's a it's an interesting talk. It's not an easy talk, but it's an interesting yeah. talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. Perhaps I can convince you to read one of my. Excuse me. Perhaps I can convince you to read a, a proposal. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I will try to actually do it. This I will time. send it to you. Okay. I will send good. Something new to you. So okay. Some treasure. Good. Thank Sounds you so good. Yeah.
think somebody left this here.
Is this your? That, uh, it's, uh, no, that was, uh, that's the second. It is, it's the second. Yeah. 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 Yeah.